Calvinism. All right, so a lot of people talk about this issue of Calvinism or Reformed theology, different names for it, different uh, measures of belief in it. And people ask me about it. And uh, there are multiple sides within Christianity, and that's really important because it's a secondary. There's primary doctrines or what are called essential doctrines, which are like Jesus is God, the Bible is true, hell is real, Jesus really rose from the dead kind of doctrines, which are essential, closed-fisted, primary doctrines within Christianity. And then there are what are called secondary, which are things people debate about, like uh, tongues and uh, gender roles and Calvinism, Reformed theology, whether God chooses us or whether we choose God, so on and so forth. So this is one of those. So the first thing to say about Calvinism or Reformed theology is that it is a secondary doctrine. So there's no need to divide over it. There's no need to create identities based on it to say, uh, I will work with these people or I won't work with these people. I will hire these people or I won't hire these people. Those churches are right. Those churches are wrong. All of that is bunk because it's a secondary doctrine. So we have people on our staff, pastoral staff, people who teach and preach at different levels of ministry who have different views on this issue, on Reformed theology, on Calvinism. And so uh, it's not something we divide over. It's not something we hire based on at all. But of course, through your life, you come up with different things. And people ask me what my personal view is on it. And you know, they're interested in that for whatever reason. I don't know. And so here's what I've uh, dealt with or come to in my life. When I first became a Christian as a 17, 18-year-old kid in high school, I was discipled by um, a guy who was uh, w- w- probably have more Arminian theology. And so there's there's what's called Calvinist theology and Arminian theology. And those are different views on this issue of whether God chooses us or whether we choose him. And, uh, and there's obviously way other, way more facets to it than that. Um, views of man and sin and God and how salvation works and so on and so forth. But basically just kind of honing in on this issue of, of our salvation. And cause it's kind of the central, one of the dividing points of the whole thing. And he believed that we, you know, have faith and, Christ and we choose that and we believe in that. And then the implication of that as more Arminian uh, theologians or denominations or churches would believe is uh, that we can ergo kind of lose our salvation because of course we choose God, we maintain our salvation. And so uh, we put our faith in him and uh, we, and of course the passages that are cited here are that God doesn't want any to perish, but all to have eternal life, uh, the invitations of Jesus to believe in him and so on. And so the idea is that you can have salvation one moment, then lose it another. And so you might, you know, uh, kind of the parable, of the seed in Mark four, you might believe for a time, um, but then it goes away and you, you know, and so this, this whole idea is basically, Hey, look, Uh, I have free will. I have, I hear the salvation message of Christ and I choose to believe in Jesus or not. That's kind of the Arminian philosophy, particularly on, 
in the regard to salvation. And then there's the Calvinist philosophy, which is no, God chooses us. And so my experience was I had a guy who discipled me for a lot of years and that's what I kind of came to. And then I remember when I, and kind of, you know, here's a, here's a, you know, out of the bag, uh, you know, spoil the ending spoiler alert, um, that I'm more of a reformed guy, uh, in regard to my theological position on this. Um, and I'll tell you kind of how I got there. Um, so I'm, I'm someone who as you know, anyone in this debate obviously wants to value the Bible above everything else. And so oftentimes the Bible will push against what seems rational or what seems to be immediately, you know, uh, kind of evidential, like, Hey, I was walking along one day, I was doing my own thing. I, then I chose to believe in God. And so that's what happened experientially. Ergo, that's must inform my theology. And oftentimes I've found in life that the Bible simply pushes against what seems to be on the surface, the case with so many things in life. And so I'm open to the idea that the Bible is going to push against my views on how I became a Christian or what maintains my salvation in any way. And so I, um, I remember I was kind of more of, uh, Hey, I chose Jesus kind of guy. And I remember the day I was sitting on my front porch. I was, I, I was doing a, a private, I was probably 19 or so, and I was doing a devotional. Uh, and my devotions at that time were basically sitting out on my front porch, drinking coffee and reading the book of Ephesians and reading John Stott, who's a New Testament scholar, a uh, very well-respected New Testament scholar, died a few years ago, um, was a British preacher at All Saints Church in Britain and for years and years. And I was reading, uh, kind of reading his commentary alongside of reading the book of Ephesians. And, uh, I got to the end of Ephesians two, surprisingly, actually it wasn't even Ephesians one, which most people bank, you know, their, their reformed theology on, uh, because Ephesians one, of course, says that, uh, we were predestined before the foundation of the world. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, predestined us and so on of elected us, you know, all these, all these, this language, but it was Ephesians two where Paul says that we're dead in our trespasses and our sins. And we're dead in the sense that we are enslaved to the flesh and the world and the devil. And then, and he kind of describes this in Ephesians two, verse one to three. And then in Ephesians four, there's a turn. And what Stott called, you know, the greatest word in the Bible, the word but, uh, you know, but verse four says, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenlies. And there was this kind of moment where I read Ephesians two and I thought, you know, what do dead people do? Dead people don't make choices. They don't do anything. We're spiritually dead, but God made us alive together. God moved first on my dead. It's like Lazarus in the tomb where Jesus walks up and he says, get up. I need God. I believe I'm so uh, sinful, so depraved. And, and, and that, the, that the concept, and this is what Martin Luther talked about. He said, you know, the concept of free will, that somehow we believe the idea that we're walking through this world and we've got like this kind of neutral view on life and we're just making choices based on objective, you know, values and objective views on everything is just skewed because 
of course, Jesus teaches, the New Testament teaches, that we're born into sin. And so if we're born into sin, you know, Jesus talks about the idea in um, the Gospel of Mark that, that out of the heart comes adultery. Out of the heart comes uh, 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 fornication and immorality and and uh, greed and gossip and these kind of ideas that that and Paul goes on to talk about gossip and so on in Romans one. But this idea that our it's out of the heart. It's actually out of our natural state. So so we're not we're not going through life. The free will is kind of a, uh, Luther called it the bondage of the will. He said, you know, you're you're not a clean slate. Your will is actually not just kind of clean and objective and free. It's already bent. You already have a proclivity towards sin. And so everything you do is skewed through sin. So what God has to do in the end is, is overthrow your, your uh, deadness. He needs to walk up to the tomb that is your life and your soul and your mind and your heart. And he has to say, rise, Lazarus. And so God made us alive together with him when we were in this state of deadness. And so God, you know, in a sense, what, what Wayne Grudem goes on to explain in, in the passages where he ex- explains the doctrine of what's called regeneration, where the, the human uh, soul is dead, the mind is dead, it's, it's, it's evil. And yet, this is all Paul in, in Romans chapter one and two, and yet God moves on. His spirit has to make us born again. It has to move on us and regenerate us. And so Wayne Grudem has this phrase that I remember bumping into years ago. And he said, you know, in the doctrine of regeneration, which is about the second birth, you know, re meaning kind of over again and Genesis meaning to, 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 to be born, um, that the whole doctrine of regeneration is that your, your dead soul, life, whatever needs to be reborn. It needs to be, you know, and how does that happen? Is the spirit of God Jesus teaches in John three comes and blows in a way that, that we couldn't control. And Wayne Grudem says this phrase, he says, and this will be, you know, offensive to some people, but he says, you have about as much to do with your second birth, your spiritual birth, as you did with your first birth, which is nothing. Of course, your parents got together and conceived of you. And so God had to move on a dead soul to make it alive, to quicken it, to embrace faith. And so Ephesians 2 then goes on at the, at the climax of eight, verse 8, eight 9, and 10. And he says, you know, we aren't saved. We're saved by grace through faith. And then he says this, this, not of yourselves, but is a gift of God so that no one can boast. So he's saying, you're saved by grace through your faith in Christ. And then he stops and he goes, and that faith wasn't actually even you. It was a gift given to you by God. Your faith in Christ, that moment. And that's when I was sitting on my porch and I'm like, oh my goodness, I was dead. He moved on me, quickened me, made me alive and gave me by his grace, which is undeserved favor, gave me the, the faith that I needed to believe in him. And of course, and so God gets the glory. God, at the end of the day, if someone sits you down and says, who is responsible for your salvation? You can, with a, with a clear idea, and this is what I began to understand on the porch that day, say it was God. God gets all the glory. I get no credit because even, even in my 
even in my faith, he's the one who gave me that gift. He's the one who moved on me when I was sinful. And so then I began to read the rest of the New Testament. I began to see Jesus talk about, you know, that idea that that sheep get chosen and that you wouldn't believe unless God, unless you were part of the fold, all these kind of teachings, John 10 and so on. And, and then I'd read Romans 9, 10 and 11. Of course, all this stuff is debated and there's views on both sides of this issue that interpret these texts. But I began to see it as, as Paul works through the Israel story in Romans 9, he says, you know, you have Abraham and not the rest of the world. You have Jacob, not Esau. You have Isaac, not Ishmael. All of these are choices that God made. These are the elect people he talks about. He says he, he didn't choose both Jacob and Esau. He chose Jacob. He didn't choose both Isaac and Ishmael. And then Paul gets to the point and he says, and this was all on God's choice. This was all based on what he wanted to do because the ultimate story in the universe isn't about you or me. It's about the glory of God. And he's doing something here in the midst of, I mean, and people who don't like the idea that God would move first or God would somehow, you know, choose. Um, I find that they have maybe a a less, uh, it's almost like, I remember Spurgeon says it this way. He says, when we struggle with the verse in Romans 9, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. He says, that's to misunderstand. That's to put the wrong emphasis in the wrong place. He says, if you think about the Noah story, you know, God comes and based on his pure judgment and wrath, the deserving humankind all gets wiped out in the, in the flood. But eight people get saved. And Spurgeon says, you know, we shouldn't look at that and say, oh God, you're so unjust. You killed everybody. We look at that story and we go, oh my goodness, look at the grace of God. He saved eight. And so Spurgeon says, in the same way, when we read Romans 9, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated, what's supposed to blow our mind and make, make us go into an existential crisis isn't, you know, Esau I hated. That's what we all deserve. What's supposed to blow our mind is, is Jacob I loved. Because that's the undeserving part, that God would ever love any of us because the fact that we choose Satan and sin over Jesus every single day, and yet... He loved us and moved toward us. And Spurgeon says, that's what's supposed to blow your mind. That's what's supposed to make you sit back and go, look at this God. He's so good. I'm so corrupt. I'm so sinful. I'm born into this, this thing. And then I choose as I go forward with, the, with the, the, the combination of nurture and nature. And yet God overthrew all of that. And what I talk to my friends who disagree with me as we laugh over this issue, because it shouldn't really <clears throat> divide your life or make, you know, you, you shouldn't like create things over this on Twitter or whatever. But what you got to understand is at the end of the day, when Jesus comes back and as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in the twinkling of an eye, we become like him. Is anyone really going to throw their fist up at heaven and go, Lord, you overthrew my will. I can't believe you overthrew my will. You made me into a perfect creature and now I'm in heaven and I don't get to choose sin. None of us are going to say that. We're going to say, thank you, Lord. You overthrew my corrupt, depraved, sinful nature with the grace of God and the power of the spirit and actually overthrew my will. Thank you for doing that. And at the end of the day, none of us are going to complain. And uh, I remember talking to a friend of mine who was busting my horns about being a reform guy. And, and he said, you know, I can't believe you believe that God moves first. I can't believe you believe God chooses and all this kind of stuff. 
And uh, later on, about 20 minutes later in the conversation, he was telling me the story of the testimony of his mother. And he said he became a Christian before his mother did. And he said, you know, his mother was kind of mean and blah, blah. And then he said, I would sit and I'd pray for my mother every night that God would save her. And I said, whoa, that sounds like a Calvinist move. That sounds like a reform move right there. He's like, what do you mean? I'm saying, I said, you're going to pray what? What are you praying for when you pray for someone's salvation? That God would what? That God would move in their life. That the Holy Spirit would make them alive again. That they, he, would, he would give them new birth. That he would overthrow their will, in a sense, because their will is bad. They're making the wrong decisions. It's like dealing with my kids and me saying, I know what's best for you. Stop being an addict. Stop choosing awful things. Stop. We hope that God, who is fully good and fully righteous, does what he wants to do in our life. That's what every prayer assumes, that he can overthrow the, 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 the free will of people who are making bad decisions to bring about the good, godly things in the world. So anyway, that... Those are some thoughts, some foundation points on, I mean, there's much more to say on why I became more of a reformed thinker, uh, but I love you if you disagree with me.